Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, we're going to talk about a topic kind of near and dear to me right now, which is coping with partner loss. Your dad died two and a half years ago. And so um, I'm sure we're going to get some good advice from a person who's just written a wonderful little pocket grief book on uh, grief, loss, and recovery. By the way, she's one of our Open to Hope writers. Yes, Mama. We met her recently in, in Ohio at the Association for Death Education and Counselors. And we have just partnered with ADAC, this organization. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. And as you said, we are going to be talking today about coping with partner loss with Kim Schutz. Kim Schutz's husband died suddenly at 48 years old. At the time, she had a 15-year-old son who is now in his 20s. She is an open to hope writer and Kim has created two pocket-sized books about the loss of her husband. She now works in the funeral service industry. So welcome to our show, Kim. Thank you very much. I do still work for a funeral service. I'm a director of community relations for um, a funeral home in Newport, Rhode Island. Talk about your loss. Your husband died very suddenly and, and you were very young. Yeah, I was 45. Um, I'm not sure how much I should talk about the loss, although I know that that's a really important part of people's grieving process. Um, but so my husband went away on a business trip for three months over to Asia. Um, he was on business for the U.S. Navy and um, discovered he had leukemia and he was too sick to come home. So he had to get his treatment while he was there. And he got um, seven different infections from the hospital there. And um, I had to unplug his life support on our wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. wow, Kim, that's pretty traumatic. It was, and it was tricky because, um, you know, my, my husband was the primary wage earner and my son came with me to Asia um, to be by his father's side. But as soon as his dad entered the ICU and he looked a certain way, my son didn't want to be there anymore. And so it was like, I'm trying to be there for my husband and make appropriate medical decisions and be there and be loving towards him, you know, because for a long time we thought we still had hope. And then my son didn't want to come. And so he's by himself dealing with whatever this means in a hotel room, you know, in a place where he doesn't speak the language. So it was really a lot. Wow. Yes. A lot, a lot. What recommendations would you have for women who have really had a, a traumatic journey? Yeah. I mean, for me, so I am definitely, um, prior to the loss, I'm what most people would call an energizer bunny. Like I, I love to change and grow and things like that. And so when I first came into this, you know, when it was clear that he was not going to make it, I just was like, okay, I want to get through this as soon as possible. This is like, I, I did it like it was a to-do list, you know, like, okay, what do I need to do? Give me the formula so that I get through this as soon as possible. And then as you well know, <laughs> that is not the way that grief works. Um, and so I did, I, I'm much more of, um, well, I guess I'm a combination griever. Like I grieve with my head sometimes and then with my heart sometimes. And so I did, I actually did a lot of grief support classes, like education about learning about grief. And that was helpful for me. I know that that's not everybody's way. Um, and I did do some support, you know, grief support groups, like classic grief support groups. And I did do therapy because it was a traumatic loss. I instantly got um, 
therapeutic help for both my son and myself. Mm. Um, I actually did EMDR to deal with the traumatic piece of the loss. I found a therapist who does EMDR and, and the way that it was classically done is they move something. It's almost like it, it would probably remind most people of hypnotism, like, you know, that you see in sort of old fashioned movies. Um, but it basically is sort of rerouting where you keep that memory by moving your eyes back and forth. Or the one that I did, she used tappers where it was like these little things I held in my hand and they set the pace and it goes back and forth as I told the traumatic story because mm. I wasn't able to um I wasn't really able to sleep and I wasn't able to eat um I mean I realized that my story is pretty extreme EMDR helped you and it is bilateral stimulation so it's interesting what you're talking about you're telling the story and you've got things in your hands and it is fascinating that it works as well as it does because we hear it over and over and over here about how it really helps people. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it took about, cause these are like classic, like 45, 50 minute sessions. So it took me about six to eight months to get through it because, you know, partly what they have you do is they have you tell the story. And then the, the therapist is looking for those sort of um, activation points where it's like, they see, you know, you either have a physical response or you're emotionally charged. And then they sort of find a way of deactivating that. And I will wow. say to, um, to address that a little bit further. So with my son, we did a children's bereavement program that was broken down into appropriate age groups. So he was a teen. Um, and I think he really um, benefited from that. We did that for about a year and a half and I was in the parents group. He also had a therapist outside, but he and I were very different. You know, like I had, since I had done all the research, it's like, oh, show, show your child your feelings my child did not want to see my feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, every time he saw me cry, he would run for the hills. Um, and he, he grieved a lot more privately for a long time. Yeah. I and mean, not to say that he didn't spend time with friends. He did. He did a couple of, um, he did one of those, um, outward bound for grieving teens. Like he went on a trip to Maine sailing. And then he also yeah. did a camp experience in Maine. Um, and those were good for him, but honestly, it lingered for a long time. And, and since you did ask me how Gabe is doing, um, he really struggled with anxiety to some extent, some depression, and he was with a therapist the whole way along. Um, and he's getting ready to graduate from college, which I'm, whew, I didn't know that, wow. that would, I didn't know if that was going to happen, honestly. Mm -hmm. and, and so I discovered um, another therapy, which is called accelerated resolution therapy, which is almost like EMDR on steroids. And they wow. do, they do it in an intensive therapy. So you would do it for six hours a day with like an hour break. And he did that in January. And I will tell you that like last year going to classes, he would miss more than half of his classes because he would have anxiety and depressive symptoms. And then we did a day and a half of this for him. And he's going to all of his classes and he's ready to finish up school. He'll be done by the end of the summer. So Kim, this is phenomenal. I, I'm learning something today. I have <laughs> never heard of this. And I actually have a client that's teenage son is, is really struggling and not going to school right now. And I'm thinking maybe to look for him to look at accelerated resolution therapy. Well, and it, I mean, the thing is, is that just like with any kind of therapy, it's, it's so much about whether that modality works for you and right. 
ENI, that kind of modality works like for our brain like that. I mean, normally they had scheduled three full six hour days for him and he did it in a day and a half. So he did 10 hours total and he's going to school, which was unheard of. We had tried last year for him. We had tried an, we tried an antidepressant twice for him because depression runs in the family. His dad had it. And um, it made him sick. And it, I mean, part of the reason that I was driven to find something is he had lost like 50 pounds. He was unable wow. to. And so I had um, also part of my journey was um, that I became an atypical anorexic. I was down to a hundred pounds and unable to eat. And so I had to do an inpatient stay for about a month. It seems that people either gain or lose weight. Yeah, it's huge. My background, I have two degrees in theater. I have a bachelor's and a master's in acting. Um, and mostly I was a stay-at-home mom. I homeschooled my son until he was 17. Uh, I had a side gardening business. So I had never, you know, I'd never worked in a funeral home, never known anything about it. And um, the one of the ministers who did my husband's service was a dear friend of mine. And she ran their bereavement program for a lot of years. And then one of the people who did their social media was leaving. And she said, well, you know, you're about a year or so out. What do you think about, it's about 10 hours a week. Would you like to try to do this? You'd basically be my stage manager, setting up my chairs and my tissues and my waters. You'd be putting in the marketing. And I was like, well, I don't want to just sit at home all day and focus on my sadness. So I'll give it a whirl, you know? And so they hired me. And I loved it. I actually, that year, within a couple of months of starting it, I wanted to be a thanatologist. I went off to ADAC in Portland and I just, I, I don't know. I mean, and part of what happened for me is that, so I didn't just do that. Eventually it expanded to a full-time position and I was helping sometimes in the office sometimes. And there was this, we had this really one phenomenal funeral um, and it was so weird. It was like probably two years after my husband had died and it was not exact circumstances, but he was the same age. He was healthy. Oh, he wow. went to the hospital on a Friday and he was dead by Saturday. He had a 15 year old daughter. They, um, were in education. They actually homeschooled my kid in science for a long time. And I could see when I went to that service, because I was sort of helping with that service, because they did sort of out of the box memorial kind of thing. And I saw when that surviving spouse, when his wife came in and she just had this, I just don't even know how to describe it. It was like this keening, right? Like this looking up at the sky and this wailing that she was doing. It. And I, I could see that in her. And I said, oh it's different for me. I remember that day. I remember feeling exactly like that, but I'm in a different place now. And it was this moment when, I mean, it still was terrible. It's still horrible. It is still with me absolutely every single day. Um, and I think about him so much, uh, but that moment where you knew you, knew you were going to survive. I knew mm -hmm. I was going to survive and I knew that I could be a help to somebody else. I knew that I could help someone because, you know, in those dark, dark, dark times, it's like, you can't, you're like, hope doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. And the idea that what I like to think of it as is like, I couldn't find my hope. I couldn't carry my hope. And so my friends carried it for me until the day that I could see clearly, it was almost like, um, 
I often will talk about how I have a pair of death colored glasses and what death oh, I like glasses, that a pair of death colored glasses I yeah. did a, I did a sermon at my UU church um probably a couple of years after Rick died and that's what it's like it's not so some days those death colored glasses are rose colored and then some days it's like trying to see through the thick thick pea soup fog you know and you know because to me what this experience has done for me is shown me life you know I mean I know it's mm -hmm. it's almost a it's almost you know stereotypical at this point but it's like I get to be alive like I get yeah. to be alive and he doesn't yeah. and I would say that like in the beginning after I lost him um I was almost pathological about it like he doesn't get to be here I'm gonna live for two people you know and I was you know a steamroller about it and since I've sort of calmed down a little bit <laughs> That's post-traumatic growth, right, Mom? That's post-traumatic yeah, growth I, that Kim yes, is talking absolutely. about. Tedeschi and Calhoun talk about post-traumatic growth. I think we are so caught up in post-traumatic stress that we don't realize that there is also post-traumatic growth. Because you're saying, Kim, basically that you appreciated life and still being here. Yep. And they have found that people that have had great losses and adversity, like you have, we appreciate being alive. We appreciate life. We don't take it for granted any longer. For sure. Yep. I also wanted to ask you, and you brought it up, uh, how religion has helped you. So, so for me, this is a little tricky. I'm worried I'll offend people. So my husband was absolutely an atheist, almost an anti-theist. And so it was really tricky to create a service for him, but we had belonged to a Unitarian Universalist church for about 10 years mm -hmm. together. And he was very active. He actually did a sermon about atheism. Um, and I'm more of an agnostic uh, because I think it's, sorry, sweetie. I think it's a little arrogant to think that, you know, there's so much that we don't understand out there. To, so to say definitively that there is nothing after doesn't help me. I would say that I sometimes felt envious of people who believed in an afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I will say honestly that my partnership with him definitely influenced that he's very intellectual he's a scientist and you know he really and it was funny because he would i would notice with him that you know he was bopping along and then he would he would sometimes get um you know exposed to ideas that he would call wifty you know and and then he'd start listening more to the anti-theist videos so that he could believe again in the not believing um so for me you know, if, if there's a God, it's in the connection between people. And so for me, the thing that got me through was all of my huge safety net of friends. I don't have a large family. I'm an only child. And um, my son is also an only child. And so I think that the love between people, you know, and people stepping up at a time that is so easy to turn away from. You know, Heidi and I have talked a little bit about the concern about the um, kind of moving away from religion of our country in that peer support is huge in our religious communities and peer support is so important. And I think that's what we're talking about. And we hope that people will, whether they're religious or wherever they are, they will look for peers, you know, to give them support. Yeah, I was sort of amazed, actually. Um, that during my darkest hours that I actually made 
friends. <laughs> you know, I was like, who wants to be a friend with me? I'm a disaster, you know, but it was like people who understood grief came out of the woodwork. You know, it was like, maybe they were a passing acquaintance. And then all of a sudden they're showing up on my doorstep with croissants and hot chocolate and saying, let's go for a walk by the ocean. And wow. just, I mean, to me, that's the thing is it's like, if you, if you have the strength within you to stand by someone when they have their ugly cry and you don't try to fix it and you just are there and hold them in that and not necessarily physically hold them, but just are a container. To me, that's one of the most precious and beautiful gifts that you can give to another human being. Well, uh, tell us how people can find you. Now, I, you're one of our wonderful Open to Hope writers, and you've got some great articles online. So I suggest people to go to Open to Hope. So my books are Grief Surfing and Hints for Grieflings. And the reason that I created them was because of those moments when you're out and you get hit with a grief burst or a grief attack. You know, for me, it was when I look down in the cart at the grocery store and it's completely empty because I've had to pass all the things that I used to buy for Rick, you know, the smoked salmon was the worst for me realizing that I didn't have to buy it anymore yeah. and so like when that hits or like I went to a friend's birthday party and her husband was like raising a glass and talking about how he couldn't wait to share more birthdays and you know and here I am trying not to ruin a party but all I'm thinking is about everything I've lost and so for me what I wanted was like a little thing in my pocket it's like grief support in your pocket or a friend in your pocket so um you can find me at pocketgrief.com and um, there's a website there where you can buy hints for grieflings or grief surfing. And my hope is to do a series where I address different types of loss and different um, relationships and loss as well. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and for sharing for with us your story. Very impacting story. Thanks. Yes, Kim, thank you so much. And thank you for building awareness for you know, partner loss and for par for parenting solo after your partner dies. And I'm so glad to hear that your son is doing as well as he has, because you both have been through a lot. Thank you. And we want to thank everybody for joining us on this show. And Heidi and I always want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. And God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.